Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us David C. Flato. He is professor of law and of Jewish philosophy at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, scholar of Jewish law and philosophy, as well as comparative constitutional law and jurisprudence. He has a new book out with Harvard University Press. It's called The Crown and the Courts, Separation of Powers in the Early Jewish Imagination. Welcome, Professor Flato. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right. Well, it's, it's this is a very strong, powerful book, deeply researched, uh, I'll, I'll say. And maybe just first a, a biographical question. What brought you to this particular topic? It merges different interests of mine. Uh, my background is uh, I did my undergrad at Yeshiva University and went on to be ordained at Yeshiva University. And then I also went to law school. I went to Columbia Law. And then I wanted to continue to pursue more advanced academic Jewish studies. So I did a doctorate at Harvard. And that was already a few different threads that I wanted to find a way to tie together. So I thought it would be wonderful if I could dive in deeply into early Jewish sources and examine them in a critical academic fashion and try to explore fundamental themes that matter to the Western legal tradition to this day. And that's how I got onto this topic. I didn't realize what a challenging topic it will be. And it took a lot of time to work through sources and to try to allow them to speak to larger questions like the role of law in society, the administration of justice, its relation to political power, etc. I don't know if you anticipated this, but certainly issues regarding the court, uh, maybe even the court's legislative power or, or you know, the, 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 the rivalries, rivalries between the courts and, and the presidency. Those are pretty timely, David. They're in the news every day. <laughs> every single, every single day. In the United States, and they're in the news in Israel and in other countries too. And it, it, it's double-edged because it makes these topics burning and pressing and relevant, uh, which is great. But also, uh, when you approach these topics as a scholar, you want to have a bit of a remove and distance. And that's an advantage, in a sense, of looking at the early fundamental sources of the Hebraic tradition and the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, so it allows for a bit of a remove, but I think the payoff in terms of thinking about these questions is enduring. Yeah. Well, in the introduction, you seem to suggest that if we, if we go way up at 20,000 feet, 
we see is is this the the giant question we have we have the covenants we have the commandments we have we have the record of the law but that begs the question of who is to interpret them who is to preserve them and maintain them and pass along who is to administer them is that sort of the the, the grand question that we see addressed in the many texts that you run through exactly uh, in other words, it, it just, uh, in a sense, the saying uh, about biblical law or religious law that it is the will of God or emanates from revelation in its various articulations in, um, in ancient Israel begs a follow-up question of, okay, and now who administers the law, who interprets the law, who implements the law? Um, and that's a question that's not unique to ancient Israel and its interpreters. It's a question that all legal traditions have to figure out. What's the source of the law? That's one question. And the next question is, who's in charge of its interpretation, administration, uh, implementation? So uh, that question is true to all traditions and also true to religious legal traditions, including ancient Israel. How, how unusual or even unique, maybe, was it? that the Hebrew Bible uh, ascribes the law, the origin of the law to God. However, it's later administered, but that we do have a sole source, uh, a transcendent source for, for the law. Was that unique? That is a unique conception. Again, this is more the, uh, the focus of the Bible scholars and ancient Near Eastern scholars, and there's a lot of overlap between what's in the Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East. But one of the divides that I think most scholars would agree upon is the idea that the law is attributed to God and is revealed by God. Again, that leaves us with a crucial follow-up question, so how is it implemented, etc. But in terms of the source being from God, that is, I think, a relatively unique idea to the Hebrew Bible, which distinguishes it from other ancient Near Eastern traditions, which has notions, of course, of the gods and uh, wisdom from the gods and in the cosmos. But still, the law, the source of the law is usually, like in the case of Hammurabi is a classic example. Hammurabi is doing the work of the gods, but the work of the gods is to legislate the law and uh, delineate the law, not just to implement it. When it comes to the biblical scheme, God is the source of the law, and still there's this follow-up question, who implements it? And in the Hebrew Bible, perhaps with the exception of Deuteronomy, the king has jurisdiction? Right. So this is a little subtle, but it's an important point. In other words, the source of the law comes from God, but in terms of who mediates the law and who administers the law and who implements the law— here, the Hebrew Bible is like other ancient Near Eastern traditions and ancient conceptions and its assumption that whoever is powerful is in charge. And if you're within a monarchic scheme, the monarch, the king, is the one who's going to have the final word on how to enforce the law, implement the law, uh, etc. So that is, I think, in that sense, the Bible largely fits in with this ancient idea that whoever's the most powerful controls the law. But there's this critical countertext, Deuteronomy, which opens up the possibility of another way of thinking about things. And 
what you, you quote extensively the, those sections in, in Deuteronomy. It's a very powerful statement. What does Deuteronomy say on this? So here Deuteronomy is really, I think, revolutionary and uh, fantastic in its revolutionary conception because Deuteronomy, mostly in Deuteronomy 17, talks about, first it talks about the administration of justice, and next it talks about monarchy. And what's striking in Deuteronomy is those two sections, if somebody wants to look it up, Deuteronomy 17 verses 8 through 13 are about the administration of justice, and then the following verses, 14 through 20, are about monarchy, and those are distinct pericopes. So the administration of justice is up to the Levitical priests, it's up to the elders, but it's not up to the king. And when Deuteronomy next shifts to talk about the monarch, the monarch is told and instructed to abide by the law, the law as instructed by the Levites and the priests. So here we have in rudimentary form in Deuteronomy 17, what I would call a proto-separation, an early division between the law, which is the repository of the scribes and the elders and the priests, versus political power, and that's the province and the domain of the king. And the king must live under the law of God as articulated by the Levites, the priests, etc., you called this revolutionary. It, th- there is no record of any other codification in this direction, submitting where the king must submit to, to the law. Never before had this been seen? That we know of, I, I should say. I'm cautious and wary, and I try to be yeah. careful in the <laughs> yeah. way I say it in the book, because you know sometimes we're too quick to say this is the only instantiation of something. Yeah. But it's certainly standout, and it's breathtaking in antiquity, and it's breathtaking against this background of the rest of the Hebrew Bible. That's really the most important point, that even in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, you think about Solomon, he is the embodiment of uh, justice and administers justice, and so does David, and so does Absalom when he's competing with David, his father, and onward. And yet, in Deuteronomy, there's a different type of a vision. And what really got me interested in uh, is not so much Deuteronomy, because that I think others have noticed, but what happened with Deuteronomy? What's the afterlife of Deuteronomy 17? And that's really what most of the book is about. What was the reception history of Deuteronomy 17, given how unusual, revolutionary, anomalous it is in antiquity and in the context of the Hebrew Bible? Well, when I read it, I had a a practical question. Now, how how are Jewish priests going to persuade a king to accept the independence of of someone else, a judge, tell him you broken the law, pal? And and that's why I use the word uh, even in our discussion a fantastic vision. I think there's a fantasy to Deuteronomy 17. It's very hard to imagine its reality. Its reality takes a certain kind of society, and a certain kind of king. And that is fantastic. It's very interesting in later uh, Jewish traditions and receptions. They're keenly aware that only certain kinds of kings will abide by this. A passage I discuss uh, much later in the book, in the Babylonian Talmud, so now we're talking about you know, 500 CE or so. They make a distinction between an idyllic Davidic king versus a non-idyllic Davidic king, which I think means most kings. Yes. And most kings are not going to just submit 
to the priests and the Levites and the sages. They're certainly going to stake their ground and have their ambition and find a way to uh, follow their will. But there is this ideal, and I think ideal is, is uh, a powerful and profound one of a different kind of a society. So tell our listeners, who, who was Philo and what was his interpretation of this relationship of king and, and, and the law, the judge, and the judges of the law? Just to set the stage a little bit, so what I try to do in the book is follow some major uh, receptions of Deuteronomy 17, both in late Second Temple times and then later in rabbinic times, to try to see how do they receive Deuteronomy 17. So uh, one of the places I pause is to look at the very rich and, in a sense, I think underappreciated writings of Philo of Alexandria. Philo lives from around 25 BCE till 50 CE, okay, so he's overlapping with the life of Jesus. Uh, He's living in Alexandria, uh, where there is an important diasporic Jewish community, which has its own challenges. It's very Hellenistic in its worldview, but also has a great valuing of Jewish tradition, largely through the translation of the Torah, the Pentateuch, into Greek, the Septuagint translation. So here you have Philo, who has this Hellenistic attitude. Uh, He's a philosopher. He's a great thinker. He writes a ton, and he writes works of philosophy, but he also writes works of early biblical exegesis. And when you look at what he does with Deuteronomy 17, you see how he struggles, on the one hand, to affirm the autonomy of God's law, which he aligns with natural law. And at the same time, he finds a way to resuscitate the role of a king. Uh, Here he's influenced a lot by Plato. He sees the king as a type of idyllic figure, a type of philosopher king. So that type of philosopher king not only will respect the law, but has an important role in embodying uh, legal values and even administering law. So he has this interesting, on the one hand, affirmation of ideas of Deuteronomy, but also revision of them in a reinserting a role of a philosopher king into the administration of justice. And that should really be contrasted with other models that you find of the reception of Deuteronomy 17. You mentioned Philo's last work, The Life of Moses. What does Philo draw from the the story, the example of Moses relative to this question? So it's really interesting. In Philo's eyes, Moses is a king. Which is fascinating because, you know, we know Pharaoh's a king, but we don't necessarily think of Moses in that sense. But in Philo's eyes, Moses is not just a king, but the model king, um, the king who embodies virtue and embodies justice. Um, And because Moses is a model king, then when Moses is at the head of the pyramid that we read about in Exodus 18 and Deuteronomy 1 of officers of a thousand and a hundred and fifty and ten. So on top of that is Moses, but it's Moses as a king, as a philosopher king, as a virtuous king. He makes, if I recall what, what, what you say, he makes a lot of the fact that Moses, Moses came out of, came out of the people in a way. He wasn't a, a descendant of kings. 
Exactly. He says a fascinating thing. He it, just the work is a life of Moses, and it's the maybe the first biography we have of Moses. Two volumes. It's a really fascinating work. So one of the things he says about Moses is Moses is a king, but he did not inherit kingship. He could have. He sees Moses as a type of prince of Egypt, and he could have taken over Pharaoh's court. But he rejects that because that's not the kingdom he wants. So instead, he earns the people's trust and respect, and they appoint him as the king of the Hebrews.、Uh, next, you move to the the temple scroll, and、uh, particularly a, a passage, the law of the king. T- tell our readers first of all what what those materials are, and then how do they interpret the court versus crown conflict. So in the late 1940s, one of the great discoveries of、uh, archaeology、uh, was the scrolls in Qumran,、um, in the northwest corner of the Dead Sea in modern Israel,、uh, what today is modern Israel. And in these 11 caves, they found、uh, 2,000-year-old manuscripts with a lot of fascinating writings that we would not know about. One of them is the Temple Scroll. So the Temple Scroll is this priestly work that draws on biblical materials to describe an idealized version of the temple.、Uh, the authors apparently were sectarians, Essenes, or Sadducees who saw the、uh, temple in Jerusalem as contaminated and wanted to think about what would be the ideal form of the temple. And here, in their description of the ideal form of the temple, they also carve out a role for a king. It's interesting to figure out: is the king's role secondary or minor or central? And that's led to scholarly debates. And I try to articulate my understanding of what it is. And I think the king has an important role. So, like Philo, it's rehabilitating a role for a king. But the king is. Inferior to the world of the temple and the priests, and one of the things that's really fascinating about this law of the king section of the temple scroll—we're talking, if you want to date it, around second century BCE—is it lays out a type of constitutional, we could call it, division where there's a role for the priests and there's a role for a council, and then there is a subsidiary role for the king. So the king does administer justice, but along with a council. And the priests are there to also oversee the process. It's another idyllic type of an account. Again, we're not sure how this would ever play out by ambitious kings who are trying to assert their turf. But still, as an ideal, it's important to see already in the second century BCE this type of constitutional, we could call it, arrangement or division. Elsewhere in the book, you have a. Sort of a miraculous feel of the idea that judges and the law are to become independent of the king. I, I share your your wonder at how the separation, this proto separation, as as you put it, of powers came along. I I think it's a I think it's an extraordinary advent in, in the course of civilization. You agree? I definitely agree, and that's why it's worth really unpacking to try to first of all just trace the sources, see how it takes different forms, and then try to dig beneath the sources to try to figure out what's animating、uh, this type of separation, what's animating this break with regnant models. 
if throughout antiquity it was so assumed that the powerful were in control, why was there this different type of a model? Now, part of this is a result of uh, the fact that a lot of these writers didn't have that much power, so they could think more ideally about how things should operate. They were not running a state. Often Jews were disempowered. I try to go to lengths to explain, I don't think it's just a function of their disempowerment, but that certainly, I think, frees them up to think about well, we see what's going on in Rome, and we see what's going on in Sasania, and we see what's going on in other societies, and how would we ideally do things, drawing on biblical material, but also trying to develop, I think, the inchoate materials of the Bible to spell out more how should things operate. Uh, near, near the end, you, you get into that bigger question of where this conception came from. You mentioned a moment ago that some people attribute it to the disempowerment of of the of the Jews, which would lead to their idealization of an independent judiciary uh, to to give to administer justice. You also uh, talk about the explanation for this Jewish impulse as the effort to resist the idolatry of the king. Where, where do you come down on that explanation? I think there are a few different factors, and I try to survey all of them that are, are the most basic ones. So I think this empowerment is a factor. A second factor is this danger of overly empowering a ruler um, and trying to resist that. And here I think it's a factor as well that law helps in a way contain and limit and restrain absolutist power. So I think that's a factor as well. I try to go beyond those factors to try to say there's a deeper value. You next turn to Josephus. T tell us who Josephus was and what Josephus's interpretation of, of the roles is. So Josephus is the great historian of antiquity for Jewish history. Without Josephus, we would be at a blank in terms of what was the history of Judaism post the Bible up until... Uh, the Renaissance. Uh, so he doesn't fill in all those blanks. He lives in the first century CE from around 30 CE till around 100 CE. And he is in a, from a prominent family, a priestly family, a Pharisaic family living in Jerusalem. And eventually when there's the revolt against Rome, he's a general in the Galilee, but surrenders to the Roman uh, general Vespasian, who eventually becomes the emperor. And Josephus lives out his days as a type of honorary prisoner of war in very good conditions in Rome, close to the emperor, including Vespasian's son Titus, and then the subsequent emperors. And he utilizes this time to contribute something that's missing in his eyes, and that's an account of Jewish history. He's living in Rome, and he sees a world where there's, you know, Greek history, where you have Herodotus and Thucydides, and you have the great Roman historians, and he wants to supply the great history of the Jews. So he writes a few different works, and I try to really focus in on two works. One is Antiquities, which is a survey of all of Jewish history from the creation of the world based on the Bible all the way down to his times of the first century CE. And then he writes another work called Against Appian, which is a more of a polemical work 
an apologetic work rebutting early criticisms of Judaism and anti-Semitic slurs and trying to instead explain why Judaism has much to be proud of as an early civilization. In terms of the question here, what Josephus does is, I think, in a sense, even more radical than what we're speaking about now, because he is deeply distrustful of monarchic power and imperial power, which is fascinating given that he's close to emperors. And yet, through his discourse, I think he's critiquing what he's seeing around him. And he's saying Rome, with all its great achievements, ultimately is too dependent on a strong imperial figure. And there's another value in Rome, which actually the Jews share, but are willing to go even further with, and that is the role of law. What is Rome known for, if not Roman law? And Josephus says, and so are we, the Jews. We are known about our great legal tradition, beginning with the Bible, and our commitment to the legal tradition. But there's one way we differ, and that is that we're willing to commit to law all the way through, and that requires a submission to law and not to the rule of men. So in a sense, he's very subtly and provocatively on the one hand, affirming the contribution of Jewish civilization in its commitment to law, and also subtly critiquing Roman society around him that thinks that they're triumphant, but don't realize the necessity to go further in the submission to the role of law. You say that Josephus spends a lot of time on the assassination of Caligula and the rise of Claudius. Why was that important to him? So I think here he's trying to address these kinds of points. He's trying to say, listen, I'm interested in Jewish history, but Jewish history and the Bible have lessons for all of humanity. And if you look at Roman society, uh, including uh, periods that were recent history in the first century CE, you'll see the great fight over imperial control and uh, the urge, in a sense, to overcome imperial control and return to a republican form of government. And Josephus is saying that intuition is correct. Republican form of government has something above and beyond imperial arrangement, and that is not just a sharing of governance, but also a restraining of the will of powerful men and uh, a submission more to values that are resilient and enduring, like the values of law. There's much, much more in the book. I'm gonna, I want to jump ahead, actually, because there's one, one issue that came up. You, you talk about the rabbinic literature, and then you talk about the Tanaitic material, which brings up a worry that has, I think, some very strong contemporary relevance, and that is not the power of that solitary king, tyrant, emperor, but what about the power of a single autonomous judge? What are we supposed to do about that? So when you look at the rabbinic materials, I think the rabbinic materials pick up on a lot of the themes we're discussing. They realize the importance of Deuteronomy 17, and they build their account of the court system on it. 
And they go further in saying it's not enough just to have a divide. We also have to think more deeply in how to arrange the judiciary. We can't just say go to the temple and go to the Levites and priests. That's a model that maybe worked in the past, but we have to give a model uh, that we at least we could aspire towards that is one that works over time. And that is we have to think more carefully about how to construct courts and that very structure of the judiciary is of great importance. So one of the things they're concerned is that even within the judiciary, you could have an empowerment, a very strong judge, a chief justice who is dominant and really forces jurisprudence in certain directions. And that is another form of the trap of being under the empowerment of man and not living under the rule of law. So the best way to do things is to try to distribute judicial power. And the more important the matter, the more voices you need. So in the rabbinic account of the Sanhedrin, its idealization of the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court of the past, but it's more a model of how things ideally should be, you should have 71 sages. Big matters, you can't leave just to a single judge. And of course, this echoes a lot with uh, uh, realities that we run into in modern law. If you think in the United States that if you have a case, it's so important to figure out which venue and who the judge is. And you're often at the mercy of one judge or even three judges and sometimes even nine justices. So the idea here is one of the solutions. There are various solutions. I wouldn't say they're solutions. They're uh, structural mechanisms to improve the situation is to include and encompass more voices about matters of great importance. The book is The Crown and the Courts, Separation of Powers in the Early Jewish Imagination. Professor Flato, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.